Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone, and welcome to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Now, let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. Uh, So every year, about 700,000 people take their own life and there are many more people who attempt suicide. Every suicide is a tragedy that affects families, communities, and entire countries, as well as having a last, long-lasting effect on the people that left behind. Today, we're talking about something that's pretty deep and that pretty go- that goes pretty deep into our hearts and into the lives of everyone in the around the world. Uh, Suicide ideation, suicide tendency in children. And it's something that we don't really notice that I never knew came as frequently as it happened, as occurs as normally as you would think. Um, to help us talk about it and understand it a little bit more, we have Dr. Jennifer Hostein. How are you going today, Jennifer? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing really well. And I'm very excited to talk about what we're talk- what we're exploring today and what we're trying to understand. Um, I think I said before the recording that I was not expecting the amount of um, the amount of commonality that it has when talking about suicide attempts or self-harm in children itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I was definitely not expecting the data to reach as high as it is and um, yeah, I was just wondering if you could sort of talk about how you got into this and what your profession is. Sure. So I am a um, child, adolescent, and family psychologist based in New York City. And I think I kind of got into it in a slightly roundabout way in that um, when I was a teenager many years ago, I just remember thinking being a teenager was really hard and I didn't have like the skills that I would have wanted Um, you know, I think every teenager has periods where they think, you know, life might be better if I wasn't here. I definitely was one of those teenagers. But in the 80s, when I was a teenager, we weren't really in therapy and doing all that. When I went back to grad school, I was like, I want to work with teenagers. I know that that's the age that I wanted to work with. I was like, they are so misunderstood. That's what I want. And the treatment that I really gravitated towards focused on self-harm and suicidality as kind of one of the bigger symptoms that it addressed. So I kind of came in it from my whole life experience of like being an adolescent was really sucky and it was hard and I wanted someone that I could talk to. And then I went, I could be that person. And, and then kind of fell into a treatment that I, it just is very skills-based and very practical. And I went, that's it. And so that's kind of how I got into this. And I've been doing it for uh, 20 plus years at this point. Wow. It's amazing how much a, you needing help turned into you helping other people mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. using sure. that that lack of assistance and that lack of understanding into what you do now. Yeah. 
And I think it was helpful. I think, you know, I always joke that kind of psychology chose me. And I think some of that was just, that's who I am as a person, right? Like, I think it just made sense that this was my profession. Um, but I think my fo- my like hyper-focus from the second I started in the field to work with teenagers and to kind of want to be a safe, kind of supportive adult that's not a parent kind of a person was always like, just, it was always the road. I kind of deviated a little bit, but for the most part, it's always been the ages that I, so that like, give me a really tough 14, 15, 16 year old. And I am happy to just sit in a room with them and hang out. Well, that's perfect. (laughs) And pretty much the perfect guest to talk about what we have, um, what we have to talk about today. Uh, Before we get started, we love to start with a little icebreaker to sort of get to know you on a more personal level and sort of open uh, our audiences up to understanding a little bit more about you. So when I um, say these keywords, do you mind just saying the first thing that sort of comes to your mind or the first thing that you can think of? Sure. Okay. So the first one is your favorite book. (laughs) Funny, the what book I'm going to say is a funny choice based on what we're talking about today. So my favorite book of the moment is A Little Life by Hanya Yanagara. And it's basically about friendship. And one of the characters is very traumatized over his life and engages in a lot of self-harm and has a lot of suicidal ideation. I don't think that's what drew me to the book initially, but ironically, since we're talking about this today, it is one part of the book, but it is one of the most beautifully written books I have ever read. Wow. I I love when it's sort of, um, a lot of books just sort of have that way of filling in a lot of things that you try to understand. And Mm -hmm. I love when books sort of explore one area, but not make it the entirety of, yeah, of what it talks about. So that is that is very interesting. Uh, the second one is your favorite movie. Say anything. With John Cusack, okay. it's it's a great eighties rom com. <laughs> I haven't seen. I think I've heard of it. It sounds familiar. You ever see the image of like when someone holds the boom box over their head and like they're playing it to a girl in a window? Like it's from yes. that movie. Oh, okay. Okay. Yep. I understand it now. I think it's <laughs> um, um, it's definitely one of those films that comes to mind when um, it's on like a Sunday afternoon, that kind of Run? time. Yeah. I yep. love, I love watching those when I'm, when I have the TV to myself, that's what I usually watch on a Sunday. Fair. I get it. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the next one is your favorite podcast. So I don't have a favorite podcast. I tend, because I talk so much all day, I tend to listen to music more than I listen to podcasts. But when I do listen to podcasts, I definitely listen to like murder, mystery, true crime podcasts. But I don't think mm-hmm. I have a favorite Um because sometimes I just like the talking. I can't listen to the talking. I just need like music in the background. So <clears throat> that's a harder one for me because I'm not such a podcaster. Okay. Well, Sorry. that, no, that's, it's, there's plenty of guests who come on and just say this exact same thing. So mm-hmm. you're not the, you're not the only one. Um, but I do like, I do like true crime as well. I love, mm-hmm. um, there's, one podcast in um, in particular, I can't remember the name, but it has, it talks about one true crime situation that happened a day 
So at that oh, same yeah, yeah, yeah. time, there's, yeah. So I love that one when I'm like, for me, I'm talking all the day too. I'm, I'm usually right. the one sitting on this end. So podcasts are not a huge priority for me either. But sure. That is the genre that I do listen to. It's kind of fun to try and figure it out, you know, and kind of be like, well, why didn't they think of, or how did they get there? I, yeah. Yeah, kind of exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so the next one is a famous role model of yours. Famous role model. Um, so I think, <clears throat> especially kind of in the field that I'm in, there's a woman named Marsha Linehan who developed the treat. I work the tr- the kind of treatment framework I work in is called dialectical behavior therapy, and she's the woman who created it. And I have had the pleasure and honor of meeting her and kind of being taught by her. And so I think, and just to see kind of to the point from earlier of like taking her own struggles and learn, like really learning about why her struggles were her struggles and getting her to a place where she created a treatment that really helps so many people. Um, I really admire kind of the breadth of her abilities and kind of what she's taught so many. So um, she's probably one of the ones that come to mind the most. Oh, that's, she sounds like a very interesting, interesting person. I haven't heard of Mm -hmm. her, but she sounds very interesting. Yeah. Um, So the last question is a favorite course of yours that you've completed. Um, Favorite course that I've completed. It's funny. I'm in the middle and to keep my license, we have to do continuing education credits. So like I'm in the middle of all of these courses. So I'm kind of like Mm -hmm. any of those. I'm gonna, I'm gonna honestly say like it, it's gonna it's gonna sound a little cliche, but I think one of my favorite classes, which really helped put me on the court the path of my career, was like, and probably the most memorable in many ways, was like high school general psychology, where I think I really learned that I could like take something that was a real strength of mine, talking to people, being engaged with people, and turn it into something that I loved, and my teacher really like promoted that and. I kind of knew coming out of high school that this was something I was going to do. So kind of was one of those moments of like, uh, like this, you know, when you have that light bulb moment, I was able to have one of those really great light bulb moments when I was like 17 or 18 and be able to go, that's it. That makes sense to me and keep it moving. So here I am many, Mm -hmm. many moons later and I still credit that with helping me get there. So see, that's, that's very lucky. Not a lot of people are able to get that spark. No. And it was really, I mean, you know, out of most of my friends at this point in our lives, like I'm probably one of the only ones that does what I actually like studied in college. And like, you know, most of my friends studied something at university and did do something totally different. I kind of Mm. found a path and stayed on it, which is rare, I think. So I was very lucky. Yeah, no, that it sounds, it sounds like it's a fun journey right from the get go. (laughs) (laughs) It's been interesting. That's true. (laughs) So today you're joining us to talk a little bit more about suicidal tendencies in children, as well as um, sort of talking about self-harm situations that can occur. To start off with, we love to ask the guest, I know that everyone has a very definite definition of what parenting is and what it can possibly Mm -hmm. mean. Uh, What do you think your definition of parenting could be? So I look at parenting as kind of 
the you're you're the guide right you're you're the kind of the 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 person who's kind of setting kind of setting the road and when kids are little and and you don't necessarily have to be the biological relation right i think it can be kind of the guardian the biological parent a grandparent who's but but the person who's there to kind of be the guide when they're very little you are really involved but still giving some space for growth and as they get older kind of being able to maybe be a guide from more of a distance but being the safety net for when they fall so um we all have to fall and and we learn the most when we fall and parenting is being able to a watch the fall and be okay with it which is really hard and b kind of really get into the nitty-gritty of accepting the kid you have even if it's not always the kid you want and i think that that's where we have so much challenge in parenting is we try to mold children in our own image when in fact they're not you know they are their own little people and sometimes very big people and we need to give them that space so i think parenting is really about being the guide that provides the course and the path and the knowledge and then supporting as it's put into play and what do you think the expectant parent needs to be aware of in their transition to parenthood? So I've said this to some of my friends and colleagues and they yell at me, but I'm going to stand by it. You're going to screw it up. Like you're going to screw it up. Like there's no manual. There's no manual that like, like you get a manual for your car and for your TV and your computer Like you get manuals, but like there is literally no manual. So everybody's going to give you advice figure out what really works for you and your family and close everybody else out. Mistakes are going to be made. Everyone will be fine, you know, and don't be afraid to ask for help. I mean, I think those are the three things that you like, you know, like ask for help and take what you need and throw away the other stuff, you know, but I think everybody thinks they know what you need to do. And at the end of the day, like your gut and your general sense is going to guide you and you've got to stick with that. No, I think that is, that is perfect <laughs> advice. <laughs> Somebody yelled at me when I told them that. I'm like, you're going to screw it up. They're like, that's awful advice. I'm like, why? You're not going to be a perfect parent. It doesn't exist. It literally doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. I have great parents. They are not perfect. You know? Yeah. And, and I they'll, think they'll, I'm pretty sure every it. kid. Yeah. I'm pretty sure every kid can say the same thing. Mm-hmm. Even especially so if they think they're the perfect parents. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. And if you think you're the perfect parent, there's probably something wrong. Yep. So I think the best person <laughs> who can judge parenting is the kids of the parent. <laughs> Only when they're adults. Yes. While they're in exactly. it, they probably are not really very good judges of whether or not they're a good parent. But <laughs> when they're older, like when I was 16, if you said, Do you are your parents good parents? I'd be like, no. But when I'm 36 or older, right? Because now that I'm an adult and I can look back, I'm like, no, they really set me up for success. And and that's what I, you know, that was great. And they had to parent my siblings and I differently. And that was hard, but they figured it out. And, but when I was 16, if you would ask me if they were perfect parents, I would have been like, you are out of your mind. But <laughs> now it's okay. So we're going to go into a very, very serious, serious um, sort of understanding. And to start off with, there's another definition that we would love to sort of get your opinion on and as to how you would define the suicidal tendency of a child. Right. So 
kind of in the lingo, right? We call it, we we call it like suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. And what we said, what what it is, is it's really, and this is true for across all ages. So it's not just kids. The idea that not the idea, but the fact that they're having thoughts of wanting to die. So suicidal ideation is the idea and the thinking. It's a cognition that I want to die, and it could be mm-hmm. very passive. I really wish I was just dead. Life would be better if I wasn't around, right? And and it could be fleeting. And many of us have that thought at different times. Like everybody hates me. Nobody wants me to be here. You know, in one of our really down moments, maybe we're in a fight with our friend or something and we have, but it's fleeting. It kind of comes and it goes. When we are worried is when it's some a thought that sticks around and it is not just this passive, I wish I were dead, but maybe it moves into... I'm going to kill myself and I know how I'm going to kill myself or Mm. I'm going to kill myself and I'm going to do it on this day. You know, and there's so we want to assess when we are hearing about kids that are suicidal. We want to know what the thought is that they're having because that thought is very powerful. We want to know if they have a plan. So what by what means would they kill themselves? And we want to assess in some ways, most importantly, for whether or not they actually intend to act on anything, right? So kind of the whole idea of of a suicidal child is they're having very strong feelings that they want to die, that they do not want to be here anymore. And then we want to assess for these other pieces because kind of in some ways that gives us information on how kind of intense that ideation is for the different kids. Mm -hmm. And so the whole suicidal ideation is it very is it interchangeably with suicidal thoughts yeah so suicidal thoughts and suicidal ideation ideation is basically a thought so um so yes they can be totally used interchangeably and and you know i think it's hard to know there are markers for who might be a greater risk for Mm -hmm. having suicidal ideation or any sort of self-harming behaviors, which aren't necessarily suicidal or any suicide attempts. There might be certain markers we can cut when I'm sure we'll talk about what those markers might be. Um, but I think it's a matter of, you know, it can happen to anybody at any time. You know, there's a lot of factors at play. Mm-hmm. And what is the association between suicidal tendencies in children and parenting? So, you know, there is there we know that a lot of young people who are suicidal have some depression, some anxiety. So there can be a genetic we also know that depression and anxiety can have a genetic component. So we know that some parents can pass that down, right? We not always, but sometimes. Um and we know that um parents are afraid, I mean, understandably you don't want your kid to ever come to you and say, hey, I want to kill myself. I mean, that's not something parents really ever want to hear their child say to them. So there is a correlation because parents are often the front line of defense in helping their child get the help and support that they need. So we want to make sure that we aren't avoiding of conversations about it. We want to make sure that we don't inadvertently exacerbate the problem by ignoring it, telling them to buck up, shake it off, you know, all the things that kind of can be very invalidating, which actually could increase some of the negative thoughts and increase some of the urges to hurt oneself that exist for a lot of kids. And so there's that whole sort of conversation that a lot of parents, like you said, don't really want to 
have and they don't really want to hear that okay my child and a child's never going to really admit saying okay i want to kill myself in most cases that scenario won't happen how would you sort of open that conversation because a lot of kids and it's very hard to sort of have a tell that they are feeling that way or they are thinking about um having a suicidal thought right so how what is the biggest how do we think about it so i think there's a couple things to consider right as a parent and i say this to my clients parents all the time you are really the expert on your own child right you know even when they are being secretive and hiding stuff and all that things you know like in your core and in your cellular being when something's not right so mm-hmm. very often what we notice are things like there's an increase in depression or there's an increase in anxiety i think there's um for a long time we thought that suicidal ideation suicidal behaviors any of those things were really only linked to depression and i think what we've learned over time is they are also highly linked to anxiety that there is this real sense of of like i just can't get calm in my body everything feels so overwhelming and i just want this to end so we have to remember just as an aside that a lot of active suicide a lot of death by suicide is impulsive right i just i can't take it anymore i need all of this to end and i act so what we need to think about as adults in the lives of these kids is what's changed are they more depressed are they more anxious are they withdrawing from things they liked to do you know i think we can think about it almost as like some yellow flags that lead into the red flags you know so like the yellow flags are kind of the slow down pay attention hey look at me kinds of things so you know are they not hanging out with their friends as much are they not kind of are they being more isolative are they maybe usually a good-natured young person and now all of a sudden they're kind of irritable are they more withdrawn maybe they're not doing the sports that they used to do or working as hard in school so these are kind of like softer warning signs but still things that make you kind of cock your head a little bit squint your eyes and be like is everything okay you know and Mm -hmm. what our urge is as adults is to go you're not working hard enough why aren't you hanging out with your friends instead of slowing down and going you seem a little off like is everything okay are are Mm -hmm. you are you okay and really waiting for the answer um because i think a lot of times what happens is our own anxiety gets activated and we're like are you okay what do we need to do something need to happen you know and we don't give the space for young people to step into and share with us how we're feeling so i think when you have some yellow flags and yellow warning signs you want to kind of notice that and then the red flags are more talking about death maybe they're giving away belongings that they really have loved maybe they've said i just want to die or you know you'd all be better off without me here and they're using that language with you So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, you have it kind of handed to you, which as to your point, it isn't always so handed to you, but we can't be afraid of what we're own, like our own body is noticing. And we can't be afraid to say, hey, I'm really worried about you. I notice that you haven't been yourself. You seem more depressed. Are you thinking about, you know, are you thinking about killing yourself, hurting yourself? Like, I think we, we can't be afraid to ask those questions. And how do you know there's a difference between sort of like the teen angst and actually the child's just sort of just not just having those thoughts? Like you mentioned a few things that, especially the yellow warning signs, that's sort of like you can perceive it as just being a teenager. 
just completely letting that. So how do you know that there's a something to be worried about? I think you take it all seriously, right? So I think, yes, teen, you know, part of being a teenager is developing your sense of self and creating um, kind of your goals and understanding who you are. And there's a lot of interpersonal problem. I mean, being a teenager is lousy. It's just lousy. You're, And it's really all about kind of separating and like individuating and becoming who you are. And there's so much strife in there. And so we know, right, there's a lot of dysregulation. There's a lot of challenge. There's a lot of irritability. But if we have, and if we think about it, it all exists on a continuum, this is kind of, if the continuum ends kind of where it should, we put in quotes, it's like one or two steps beyond. So most teenagers are having angst, aren't wanting to die. They're just feeling lousy and having a day and everything sucks and they just want to be left alone. So it's that step one step further, you know, that one moment further where they're like, you know, but but it, this is so awful. It's never, it's so black and white. It's never going to get better. I just should, I'm a burden to everybody. So it's listening kind of very closely to some of the language choice. And I think as a parent, it's, you know, and you and I were talking about this before we started too, Dina, about just, you can't be afraid to say, tell me more. You know, you can't mm-hmm. be afraid to kind of lean into that and say, well, you know, this this seems like a lot going on, but it's maybe bigger than I thought it was going on. Like, what's up? You know, and I think you have to be a detective into what your kids are saying and ask for more information. And they're going to roll their eyes and they're going to suck their teeth and they're going to tell you you don't get it. And especially teenagers. And they're going to be like, you, you don't know anything. And they're going to walk away. And you kind of have to say, look, like I am here for you. And there is an open door and you have to be available when they come back because I'll come back. Mm-hmm. And so now going into sort of the prevalence of suicidal tendencies, how common is the situation in children and also how serious is it? So it's very common, right? So, you know, in the United States, we're really kind of highlighting, especially for young women and girls, um, how the numbers have increased incrementally, especially, you know, kind of starting in 2010 to now, kind of depression, anxiety, self-harm, suicide rates have increased 50, 60% amongst that population. In the world, kind of the World Health Organization said that suicide is the fourth leading cause of death amongst 15 to 24-year-olds, like fourth, like amongst all of the people in the world. Like that's scary that it's the fourth leading cause of death. In the United States, it's the second leading cause of death from 10 to 24 year olds. So it's prevalent and it is humongous. The numbers are large. And in in the United States, we're really looking at it as a mental health crisis, right? That we are looking at these young people suffering and struggling without the supports that they need Um, you know, and kind of one step further, like when we're talking about what supports are in place, kind of, and I was just kind of Googling and doing the research, like out of 195 countries in the world, only 38 actually have like actionable suicide prevention plans within the government. Yeah. (laughs) Which is like, what, you know, um, there's so many reasons for that. That would probably take another podcast, but like, you know, stigma being the biggest, right? We don't like to talk about mental health. We don't want to talk about suicide. We don't, you know, we don't equate 
mental health and physical health together. And the fact is that just like we all have physical health, we all have mental health, but there's still this, should we talk about it kind of thing? And, and we're missing out on really helping where we need to be helping. Yeah. And I think the first time I ever really saw an example of like suicidal thoughts in children is that show when it came out 13 reasons why mm-hmm. and yep. and that was a big one yeah and just how in-depth it got I mean there are some countries that they weren't allowed to play it in because yeah. of how deep it was and I know um there were people that were watching it from the con- those countries. Like I know a couple of friends who it just would not air there and they had to like steal sort of like steal someone else's from another country and watch it from there. Cause it's just, yeah. people don't want to talk about it. And no, and it's scary it's, because I think, yeah, I think it's gonna, it's gonna create, there is, okay. So there is an element in what was really people were afraid about with 13 reasons why very much so was the contagion effect, right? That if I see you doing X, I will then do it also. And there is some truth to that, right? There is some truth to the fact that talking about, and this is part of um, kind of the media issue of this, is how we report suicides is like, we rather than say, we don't just say someone died by suicide. We tell everybody how they died, what they used. We don't say that when someone has a heart attack, we just say, they had a heart they died by a heart attack we don't get into like they had a heart attack and this ventricle closed down like we don't get into all of those details we don't necessarily even talk about what kind of cancer someone died we just say someone died by cancer but when we say someone died by suicide everyone wants to know what they do how they do it and so for 13 reasons why it was a big deal because they actively showed her dying by suicide and they showed what she did and they were like you're giving all these kids the ideas and the fact is that a suicidal young person is a suicidal young person. You're not giving them any ideas. Yeah. No, that's true. <laughs> it's true. Sadly. Especially the um, the whole idea of, I think, what they when they had the videotapes, I think people took that as an inspiration, which I could see why they were trying to prevent that from happening because right. there were people that right. were sort of taking influence to it. Um. But I feel like when they took it away as a conversation, they took away that understanding of why it's there to begin with and why Mm -hmm. they made that a conversation. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think I think when we when we come from a place of fear, we prevent conversation. Right. And suicide is scary. Let's be honest. This is not this. You said it when we started. This is not an easy conversation. This is a scary conversation. But I also believe that the more we have the conversation, the less scary it is, right? If we are talking about it, then we are mm-hmm. understanding it. And just like cancer is preventable and heart disease is preventable, so is suicide. If we're talking about why people get there and what influences it and what other things we can do to try and prevent it. And I think that's that if we are like, you know, like, don't, don't, don't mention it, you know, we're we're missing out on on really important conversations to be having. So, the factors in which sort of raise the concept of suicide ten- tendencies. What are some of the factors that can sort of raise awareness to children and to parents as well? You meaning like 
So people are paying attention to what the things are that, that put them at greater risk or just like, just generally like, how do we, like, what do you, can you be, I'm not sure I understand what you're asking me. <laughs> oh yeah. Sorry. No, that's okay. <laughs> so what are some of the things that can raise awareness to okay suicidal tendencies? Yeah. So I think, you know, I think we have to think about what, I think we have to take a step back from that even and be like, what can influence people in that space, right? So we know there's, we know that 13 reasons why is not the cause that someone actually acts on their urges. But we do know that not having conversations about that and watching it in a vacuum can stay stuck in someone's head, right? But if I'm already, so so we need to be thinking about things like, Am I already, is, is, is this young person already depressed or anxious? Do they have trauma in their background? We know trauma is a big um, influencer to people kind of feeling in so much pain that they just want the pain to end and then suicide becomes what feels like their only option. Um, mm-hmm. So I think if we're talking about awareness, we need to be talking about kind of what are those risk factors? You know, what puts you at greater risk for someone who might lean towards wanting to die by suicide? What might lean you towards wanting to regulate your emotions through self-harm? You know, what are those, what are the risk factors? So being able to talk about depression, right? Being able to talk about anxiety, being able to talk about feelings Mm -hmm. without even putting a label on it is so important. And I think a lot of houses don't do that, right? We just kind of keep, keep on trucking, keep on pushing through, pick yourself up, just keep moving. So I think that's a huge piece. I think understanding the why people might die by suicide, right? Life feels overbearing. They don't have the coping skills that they need to even navigate it. Um, It feels like their best choice, which we have to put in quotes because we don't really know if it's their best choice. For some people, listen, some people die from cancer. People are going to die from suicide. Like, I think it's preventable and I don't think we're going to ever eradicate it completely. You know, I think that's the unfortunate truth. Um, Yeah. But I think knowing what you can do to, like, what are the protective factors, right? Community, connection, conversation. Like, those are things we have to kind of keep in mind because those are protective factors to being able to kind of avoid death by suicide as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And so talking about a little bit more, like you're talking about, is it, it's more common in ages of like high school ages and we know that that's sort of a really big part of any person's okay. life when going through high school and dealing with all of the high school situations that can occur what are some of the things that sort of have a huge factor in creating that sort of um point where a child is going to have those thoughts so i think and i i would argue that actually to now we could bring it back to middle school, right? I think mm-hmm. we, at least in my practice in New York City, are starting to see like 11, 12, like we had this, especially wow. coming out of COVID, like this influx of 11 and 12 year olds kind of having more suicidal ideation, not having the coping strategies to deal with their emotions. I think one major piece that we are seeing as a big problem is just general bullying, exclusion, you know. Bullying is a huge, huge, huge risk factor. Isolation from your community is big. And when we feel isolated and alone, and as if we can't trust anybody, that's going to amplify any 
depressive, anxious feelings we're experiencing, right? So that's true for adults, but we tend to be able to be a little bit more rational and reasonable about what's happening. But be 11 to 18, hormones are raging. I'm already a little bit afloat at in, at sea because I'm, you know, my hormones are all over the place and then add bullying, exclusion, social media, expectations that are unreasonable. And it's just like one more thing on the pile, one more thing on the pile, one more thing on the pile. And then I just feel like I have just been hammered into the ground and I don't know where to go with it. So I think that's a big part of middle school and high school for these kids. It's just like, who are their people and how do they find them? And are they the right people for them? And 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 then we can't dismiss experimentation with drugs and alcohol and that lowers our defenses. And then what happens with that and kind of trauma that might come in with that too. So all of those pieces kind of coming together make the perfect storm. Mm-hmm. And I think like a lot of parents um, from growing up, I've seen a lot of friends go through that conversation with parents saying that um, in order to stop all of this stuff, in order to stop them from feeling negative about themselves is to not be on social media at all. And so a lot of parents respect. <laughs> and I, like Fair. I've seen so many of my friends go through that um, blockage of social media that they're not even allowed yeah. to be on it as a yeah. hopeful, as a result of what negative negativity social media can be. Is it possible to block a child from social media? No. Um, Yes and no. I mean, unfortunately, that's the way everybody in their social circle is communicating. So it's a it's a catch 22, right? If you block them from social media and everybody's communicating that way, now I'm isolating them from the people that they want to be around. And at the same time, are they following people, influencers, whatever, that might be feeding them information that actually makes them feel worse? So it's this really challenging dance you have to do. So what I usually advise parents to do is know who they're following. Like maybe instead of pulling them off of social media entirely, because here's the thing about like, that's a punishment, right? Like you're not handling this well, so I'm going to punish you for it. Punishment doesn't teach anybody any new behavior. It just causes us to be more sneaky. So teenagers are inherently sneaky. They're just going to be more sneaky and do it on their own. But maybe the conversation has to be, hey, I see when you get off TikTok, you've done gone down this rabbit hole with all these people and you feel awful. So let's talk about why you like those people instead of just closing those people off. Like, why do you like them? What is it you like about them? Become educated about what they're looking at and then talk to them about why these people maybe aren't great options. Because when you started on TikTok, you were fine. And then an hour later, you're off TikTok and you feel crappy. Mm-hmm. Let's let's figure it. Let's put that, those things together and notice for yourself that maybe this isn't a great option for you. And now you're just you're also teaching you're teaching kind of critical thinking skills about what it is that's influencing one's mood. And I think that's going to get you much further as a parent than just being like, nope, because you, you can't bubble wrap your kid. And so it's not going to actually do what you want them to do. I think you just said something very fascinating that really stood out was when you say you block, when you stop your child from communicating with your friends online, it isolates them even more. Mm -hmm. And I never thought about it like that. I never saw it as, okay, you separate your friends online, which means you separate their conversation when they're face to face. Mm -hmm. Do you, but think about it. I think more 
I mean, how often are you having face, you know, I think kind of that middle school, high school generation right now, they don't have a lot of in real life and face-to-face conversation. They are so on their phones, through the apps, right? Like in real life, what? What do you mean? Like get together for coffee? Like that sounds bizarre. So like, I think it's, it, they, and I think especially it, listen, it all got worse when we were all in lockdown, right? Because the only way we could communicate was through screens. So while I think we want to blame, I know in the numbers in the United States, everybody's like, oh, the numbers got worse over the past three years because of COVID. Sadly, the numbers have gotten steadily worse. The, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control in the United States does a, a, every two years, they do a study called the Youth Risk Behavior Survey. And they look at all like risky behaviors kids engage in. It's drug use, are they driving without their seatbelts, riding bikes without helmets, but they look at suicide, self-harm, all of that. Those numbers have gotten steadily worse since 2010, 2012, and they Mm -hmm. didn't have a crazy spike with COVID. They just continued to get worse. What's the biggest thing that changed? Again, this is a whole different podcast, but what's the biggest thing that changed since that time? The invention of the iPhone and the smartphone. Mm -hmm. Came out in 2010, 2012. So that's yep. the biggest difference in the past decade plus. So if we, but but it's not going to change, right? We are going to stay connected online through apps and all of that stuff. So it's important to recognize like your this is how your kids are communicating. We hmm. want to encourage them to do things in real life. That's better. It's just better. But if they're in their group chats or in their Snapchat stuff or in all of those things, how do we help them be critical consumers of that medium? So that they don't go down the rabbit hole of really negative people that makes that they internalize and it makes them feel worse. So I think that's the hard part, and that's where parents need to be paying attention. Is like I, when kids walk into my office and they're still on their phones as they're walking into their session. I'm like, what are you looking at? Show me, let me see it. You know, and I'm not their parent, so I'm a little easier to share it with. But just like I used to take their head, you know earpods out and want to like hear what they're listening to music wise, I want to see what they're looking at on their apps, and I think parents need to ask those questions too. Mm -hmm. And I think this fits in really well with the next question and with our next focus, which is the protective protective factors. Um, Mm -hmm. So how can parents help to sort of prevent the suicidal thoughts in around, in around the children of different ages? It's a good question. And I think it's one we have to be, you know, be, we need to know the risk factors, but we also need to know what the protective factors are. And I think one of the most important co- protective factors is community, but we also mm-hmm. want it to be right. We know loneliness is actually a huge risk factor across all ages, little to the elderly, like loneliness is a huge risk factor. So we want to build community, but we want to build healthy community. And we also mm-hmm. know, unfortunately, that more depressed kids who are more depressed and anxious gravitate to more depressed and anxious kids. Like we find the people that are like us. That's just true, right? The jocks find the jocks. Like yeah. the, the emo kids find the emo kid. We know that, right? Like look in a ca- look in any cafeteria in high school, and you see that. So we want to try and keep kids engaged with people who are making healthy choices, and that's not always easy. And I see this all the time. That like my kids who are engaging in substance use or self harm or feeling more suicidal, so are all of their friends. So we want to kind of figure out how to also create positive environments for them. And what is that? That might be family. That could be really helping them lean into their love of art or theater or sports or music or whatever that is, but finding a place where they feel um, 
kind of solid and effective really great because we want them to have a place where they feel like I'm good at this like go me you know where they can see themselves have some success um I think another incredibly important protective factor is kind of an openness at home about discussions around emotion right I think parents are afraid to display emotion in front of their kids because they're like oh but I don't want them to see me upset but if you're upset you're modeling for your child how to navigate being upset how else are they learning it right so let's say you just got really bad news and you started to cry very often parents will be like I don't want them to see me cry they run away no like it's okay for your kids to don't let them take care of you that's one step too far but being able to see you have an emotional reaction is okay how do you rebound from it what do you do you know I think as young as you can start start talking about emotions labeling them identifying them how do we handle them what's an appropriate way to handle them how do we tell people how we're feeling all of that needs to start you know as soon as babies can understand emotion and babies understand emotion earlier than any of us realize so you know as soon as you can start to label it and ask about it and talk about it that's a huge protective factor for kids as they grow so it's the same as sort of the way that you discipline a child as well it has to be in a way that is positive rather than just lashing out or just yelling because they yeah. will take that as well. Okay. Yeah. And, and kids, I think kids that are more sensitive are going to take that much harder, right? Like I was a sensitive kid. Disapproval from my parents was like death to me. You know, I mean, I was like, mm -hmm. oh my God, what do I do to fix it? And we have, I was on one side of the continuum. My brother, he didn't care. He was on the other <laughs> side of the continuum and he just rolled with it. We were just very different, right? So we, how my parents gave us feedback needed to be different. So I think we also have to remember that like what works for one child may not work for the other child. And so how do you adapt? Mm -hmm. And, you know, no one learns the way our brain works, right? Like you don't hold on to negativity in the way that we would like. So if I came at you and you were like, you can't do that, that's not going to help you. I'm going to be like, okay. And then it's like going away. But if you come at me, you be like, hey, when you do X, it really doesn't help you get what you want. So let's talk about how to do it differently or how to do it better or how to do it more effectively. Now I can kind of hold that in my head of like, oh, I just learned something new instead of being told I shouldn't, couldn't, don't, which makes mm -hmm. me go, all right. And I just like walk away, you know? So yeah, positive reinforcement like you would when you're disciplining teaches me and keeps me more engaged. And I go, oh, right. That makes more sense. And I can hold on to that differently than I can if it's all negative or punishment. So like the different age groups that sort of come into play and the different ages that sort of go through the suicidal thought, um, is there different ways that you would communicate with them? Because I know that you wouldn't say the same thing to a teenager that you would to a middle schooler, for example. Right. I think, and and I think, listen, we, there are, I think we, we look more at the kind of 10 and up age range, but we do know that some very little kids have suicidal thoughts also, right? It's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. I have seen it. It's usually um, for two reasons. You know, I just don't think we can ignore that elementary school kids can have this happen, right? But I think a lot of it's trauma-based and a lot of it's really just, I just, you know, like, you, like I just don't want to live anymore. And oftentimes there's something that triggers that that's very concrete that we need to kind of explore for in the younger kids especially. But I think you'd be surprised that you might talk to middle schoolers and high schoolers similarly and most of it's really just asking questions 
and waiting for answers, right? So a lot of it's being able to say, hey, you seem really sad and you've said a couple times that you wanted to die. Tell me more about that, you know, and an open-ended option, right? Tell me what's going on. Or I noticed that you haven't been with your friends. Our urge is to say, did something happen? And that now you've given a yes or no question. And you're going to go, no, everything's fine. You you know, that's it. End of conversation. I noticed you haven't really been with your friends. I'm wondering what's up. That just doesn't seem, you guys usually have your like Thursday routine. What's going on, right? Just open-ended. And they may be like, I don't want to talk about it. Or, hey, I just noticed you've been moping around the house. And I just... I don't know, maybe I, I do a lot of this. Maybe I'm wrong here, but something feels off. So I'm checking in with you, you know, and mm-hmm. I think being able to just have these very simple, open-ended door openers, right? A lot of young people aren't great in a face-to-face. Like they aren't great, like staring at you, like in your eyes, right? So I don't know, are you in the car? Are you walking down the street? Are you, can you get them to go to the grocery store with you and talk to them in the car? where they're sitting next to you and they don't have to look at you, that may be easier. Um, young people young people will come to you at really random times. So all of a sudden you're doing the dishes and they're lurking at the kitchen entrance. And mm-hmm. you might be irritated by that. They want to talk to you. Hey, I see you standing there. Do we need to have a... Do you want to talk? Like, what's up? Right? Mm-hmm. No, 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 you're busy. Nope put down here's an opportunity can you put down what you're doing and like shift gears um because teenagers especially they're really good lurkers they like to just lurk and have you notice them and that could be incredibly powerful to get information Mm -hmm. and i think like when dealing with the way of coping with situations and the problem solving skills that kids would learn over time how would that sort of come into place with in terms of what a parent should do? I think we can we can teach coping strategies kind of at any point, right? So, but I think it's, but the timing matters, right? Yeah. So if your kid is coming to you and it's just like, you know, Diane did this to me at school and it was awful and I hate her and no one's going to like me because they're all going to side with her and da you never mm-hmm. want to see your child in pain. So your urge is going to be like, all right, well, this is what we're going to do. Don't do that. Like my first advice, piece of advice, like it, all out. Don't do that, right? Hey, I, I have three questions that I like to ask parents, right? I like to kind of, first, they need some validation, right? Before you before you problem solve or do anything, you want to validate them. God, that sounds really awful. It sounds like you had a horrible, horrible day today. Because mm-hmm. validation is so powerful it lets the other person know, especially your child, know that you hear them, that you see them, that you are in it with them, and that you recognize how they are feeling without trying to change it. Parents mm-hmm. do not like to see their child suffer. Their urge is to fix it. Don't fix it, at least not in that moment. Just validate it. Wow, that sounds awful. Your urge might also be to go, Diane, she's a jerk. Tomorrow, because teenagers, are fickle. Tomorrow, Diane's going to be back and being a best friend. So don't say anything about Diane. Just that sticks, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. And then we want to kind of ask, 
kind of along that same validation line. And my dad did this for me when I was a teenager, when I was a teenager, to our point of like perfect parenting. Like I see now how valuable this was, but at the time I found it super annoying, but it was really, really smart. Mm -hmm. They say that you, you can say to your child, do you want me to listen? Do you want me to help you solve the problem? Do you need me to intervene? Because some situations, like if the teacher at school is being really awful, you might need to intervene, but you don't want to just do that and yeah. embarrass your child, right? So maybe they just need to vent to you and they're just coming and they're just like, rah, 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 rah. I just need to vent. Cool. Then I'm putting my listening ears on and I'm just hearing you. But if I need to be listening to help you solve the problem, then I'm going to listen a little differently. But those three questions can get you so much mileage because your kid knows you're just sitting in it with them and you're not ready to fix it, ready to change it, ready to tell them that they need to do something differently. You're just present. Mm -hmm. And I think that gets you so, 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 so far with this age group. Okay. Um, so now we're going a little bit more into the effects of suicidal tendencies, suicidal mm -hmm. thoughts. What are some of the impacts of suicidal tendencies in children? Well, I mean, the unfortunate truth is they could act on the urges and actually kill themselves, right? We know that if we kind of don't acknowledge it, don't address it, don't pay any attention to it, there could be action, right? If we aren't paying attention to this idea of intent, we could, you know, have a dead kid. And I think mm -hmm. um, anytime someone is saying to me that they want to die, I'm taking it seriously and I'm going to assess for it. I'm not going to be like, oh, that's just drama. Oh, right. So I think the biggest thing we have to remember is if we aren't paying attention to what's being told to us, there is risk that there will be someone who dies. And we're trying to avoid that, right? Like that's our, our primary goal is to avoid that. So we want to be paying attention to that. I think um, for some kids when they have suicidal ideation and no one's listening they do kind of what we call like up the ante a little bit so maybe they become more demonstrative in their emotions or and a lot of times we look at it and the way that people look at it is they go oh they're just attention seeking this behavior is just attention seeking it's not right you talked about discipline mm -hmm. any behavior that someone engages in is information it's informative right so if i'm crying you then can see that I'm crying and, you, and it's giving you information. Is she sad? Is she happy? Is she angry? But you have to ask, but the, but the crying might draw you to me, right? So my suicidal ideation and saying I want to die or even engaging in self-harm without any suicidal intent, it's not attention seeking. It is information. And we have to lean into that information. And I think for kids who don't see you getting the information, they increase the intensity of that behavior or the intensity of the expression of their emotion so that you pay attention differently. So I think mm -hmm. we can't blow it off. And I think that's because when people in the lives of these kids, the kids don't have the coping skills. They would, if they had other coping skills, they wouldn't necessarily do this. So I think it's it's important that we be paying attention to it kind of and help mm -hmm. guide them to a healthier coping skill. So where should parents go if they discover their child has suicidal tendencies? So I think the first place to go often, right, is to, I would love to say like go to therapy, but we know that therapy is hard to access in a lot of places. 
So very often a great place to go is to your pediatrician or your child's doctor and say, hey, these are things that are happening. I'm concerned. What do you recommend? Who can we talk to? What what are some cope, you know, what are some coping strategies we might be able to engage in? If you don't have access to the doctor, but there's a trusted clergy person or a coach or another just really trusted adult, right? Some of the research that some organizations are doing are really highlighting the importance of kind of a non-parent trusted adult in the lives of these young people, because a lot of kids don't want to talk to their parents about this. They're afraid of hurting their parents. They're afraid of letting their parents down. They're afraid of their parents being upset. But an aunt might be a place that this child feels really safe and they can go and they can talk to them. Ultimately, I, if, if therapy is something that can be accessible, that's the best place to go, right? Because you can really learn healthier strategies, ways to express your emotion without wanting to kill yourself, ways to release the intensity of that emotion without wanting to hurt yourself. And um, therapists have that at their disposal much more easily than other people. That's not to say mm-hmm. other people don't, and other people have wonderful advice, don't get me wrong, but you know, therapists are trained to do that. So if that's accessible to people, that's really a great place to go. Okay. And this fits in really nicely to the next section of our show, which is called the practice and habit. Um, so what is the practice to improve parenting, to reduce the potential and risks of suicidal tendencies in children? So I think probably the most important thing that I ask parents to do is twofold. I ask them to talk less and listen more. Mm -hmm. Um, Kids give information everywhere with their friends in the backseat of the car, when they're talking to their friends on the phone, when they're talking to a sibling, when they're talking to the other parent, like you can get information you just need to like really tune in. And when we, when any of us is anxious, we talk too much. So when a parent is anxious about how safe or unsafe their child is, they're going to talk too much. So talk less, listen more, number one. And number two is validate, right? When your child comes to you and is upset, mm-hmm. don't talk them out of it. Honor what they're bringing to you. And, and like a little appreciation. I'm so glad that you're talking to me about this. It sounds like things are really hard and like, shut it. Like literally zip your lips, like be quiet, sit on. Mm-hmm. I, I have told parents to literally put their like hands underneath their legs and like sit on their hands to remind them to be quiet. Cause sometimes mm-hmm. we need like a cue, like, cause I want to fix it. I want to make you be okay. And that doesn't give your child space to talk about it because if they can talk about it, the likelihood that those urges go down increases right? Just feeling like there's a safe space and knowing that someone's going to hold that space for them is really, really important. Mm -hmm. I think it's very interesting because a lot, like you said, a lot of parents do want to fix the situation as soon as they hear it. They want to change the outcome. They want to make it all better. But in terms of what the child is sort of ready to go through and to proceed ahead, I think I've seen a lot of my friends just be able to just open up is enough Mm -hmm. and to have Mm -hmm. that line of communication is enough. Yeah. And important, right? I mean, knowing that I can come to you at any time and you will just hold space for me, like Mm. that's huge. But if I come to you and I want to share and you kind of go, 
well, that's ridiculous. Why are you even upset about that? Like, they're just stupid girls. Guess what just happened? I just went and I like withdrew back into myself and you have, I am not coming back to talk to you about these things, you know, and it doesn't matter how stupid you think it is. And most of the time, a lot of the drama that leads into bigger things is stupid. But when I'm told it's stupid, now it's just another thing that's making me go, well, maybe I am stupid. And then I start to invalidate myself, which only makes me feel worse. So Mm -hmm. it's really hard. Like just holding space is huge. So would you usually set up a time to talk about, to talk about it with your children or is it sort of when they come to you? I think it's better when they come to you, right? I think if you're worried about them or you know that stuff's been going on and you want to kind of have a weekly check-in, great. Mm -hmm. But I think it's recognizing that they're going to come to you at times that might not be ideal. Like you might be in the middle of a work project and you're working and they're hanging in the doorway and you know that they're there and they're like, hey, can we talk? Even if you're like, this is the worst time ever, maybe it needs to be, can you give me 10 minutes to wrap this up? And then let's sit down, right? Because if they're coming, they're ready. Yeah. And on a Sunday at three, if you're like, hey, let's talk about how you're doing. And in that moment, they're fine. They don't want to have that conversation that right in that moment. They're feeling okay. So when they're, you know, emotions are unpredictable. We don't know when they're going to strike. Thoughts are unpredictable. We don't know when they're going to strike. So we want to be able to just know that how can I be as available as I can be without being so overbearing and like asking too much, right? Because if you could, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the other part of validation is you can be like, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? And your kid's like, oh my God, can you just leave me alone? And they're going to tell you they're fine all the time. So I think it's, yes, you can schedule like check-in time and you might be better off kind of being like, oh, they want to talk to me now. Let's let's be available to that as much as you can be. You won't be able to do it all the time, but if you can do it, I think mm-hmm. that's very helpful. I think the thing that I've noticed, especially when I was growing up, was the fact that the men- the minute I mentioned something that I need to talk about, it's continuously also being brought up in the future. Like, oh, how are you feeling about this now? How are you dealing with this now? And <laughs> even after it's like the situation's dealt with, it was still brought up um, yeah. constantly. And that was honestly one of the most annoying things that I remember from <laughs> childhood. Yep. Yep. So it it might be good, you know, I think kids, I think one of the things young people need to learn is how to set boundaries with their parents sometimes, like in a healthy way Mm -hmm. of like, hey, if there's anything else to talk to you about this about, I promise I'm going to ask you or being able to say, but you know, when you be able to say, when you bring it up over and over again, it's really frustrating for me. So I promise I'll let you know if there's something to talk about, right? Or parents need to be able to say to their child, hey, I'm not going to bother you about this, but no. I'm here whenever you want to talk about it again, but I don't want to annoy you. So I'm not going to bring Mm -hmm. it up. Cool. Or do you want me to bring it? You know, but like it can be part of the interaction and the dialogue together of, should we revisit this in a couple of weeks? Do you think it's good? Do you think we're in okay space about it? What do you, you know, and I think that's part of kind of really building interpersonal connection also and building positive kind of interaction of like, hey, I'm here if you need me, so don't forget to ask. But I don't want to annoy you and keep checking in. So what do you think we should do? Yeah. Because I think, you know, kids like when you acknowledge your impact on them because it also teaches them what their impact is on you. And I agree with you like that. 
you okay? You okay? You okay? Oh my God, go away, right? Like that's what people <laughs> do. They, that's what they react to. So, yep. So no, I, that limit I, um, is good. I think the boundaries for my family were very much overdrawn the minute that we came into existence. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think the minute that I started to open up to them was the minute that they sort of saw it as, okay, they'll talk about anything with me now. Right. So right. there is there is that. <laughs> and that's good um, and bad, right? And some kids could tolerate that and some kids can't. You know, I mean, I think that's the challenge is that you just, you might have to, sometimes you have to throw things at the wall and see what sticks and it, it's going to be different for everybody. Yes, exactly. Um, so this sort of goes into the next part of our segment, which is called questions from audience. Um, so <laughs> audience have sent us a little bit, some questions. Some of them are sort of overlapping in what we already spoke about. Um, so I'll just go through some of the things that we haven't really looked at. Um, sure. So how can parents best support a child who has attempted suicide or expressed suicide thoughts? It's a great question. I think the tendency is to then treat your child as if they're fragile mm -hmm. because a suicide attempt of any kind, right? Even if it's just words and you kind of prevented the action, but, but really serious, like this is what I'm going to do, but maybe we've stopped it before it happened and or there actually isn't an, an actual attempt that needs medical attention traumatizes the whole family right so anytime there is a situation that could trigger it or something that comes up about it again everyone is going to be like on high alert and highly reactive because everybody's been traumatized in that space so i think first thing we have to all acknowledge is like it's traumatic for a family when someone attempts suicide it just is so i think we then have to remind ourselves that if you treat your child as fragile, it's invalidating to them, mm -hmm. right? And we know that invalidation can make increase anxiety, increase depression, increase frustration and anger, all of those things. So we have to kind of work as, and this is where therapy can be super, super powerful, work as a family on what's the language? Do we have like a password that says, hey, things are going haywire, we need some support? Can we be honest about how we're all feeling with one another without feeling like we're burdening each other, right? So if I have survived the suicide attempt of my child and I'm nervous about them going to a party because maybe that was the trigger, can I say, hey, I'm really nervous that you're going to this party. Can we talk about what the plan is? Because the last time you went, there was a problem. But rather than be like, you can't go because the last time you went, blah, 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 right? And like try and control the whole situation. We have to work on building trust and connection and awareness and um, people aren't as fragile as we think they are. And so mm -hmm. I think kind of, there's a resilience that we have to honor in that, right? They survived and they're committed to making changes. And so let's work with them on what those changes might be. And that might be changes in the whole family system that needs to happen. But, uh, but, but communication is going to be key in much of that. And, and really being able to kind of be honest about how you're having your own internal feelings and why you might be reacting the way you're reacting and then kind of working together to come up with a solution. Mm -hmm. The next question is, how can parents balance providing support for a child with suicidal thoughts while also maintaining a healthy boundary and self-care for themselves? I love this question. So very often, because very often when we are afraid that our kids are suicidal, they kind of hold the house hostage right? Parents are afraid to set a limit because that could set them off. That could, So it kind of ties in with my answer before. They're not that fragile, right? And so mm -hmm. we don't want 
We want to make rules at home clear. We want to make expectations at home clear. And what happens is you brought up discipline before. We can't be afraid to discipline somebody for doing something wrong, right? We also want to reward them for doing things that are right. And we want to make it very clear what the difference is. What happens if, if I'm afraid that my child might hurt themselves or might kill themselves is I inadvertently reward the wrong behavior. There's an escalation in mood and I go, okay, 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 it's fine. You can go with your friend and I give in, right? Mm-hmm. Because I'm afraid. I am understandably afraid. But if I don't believe they should go out with their friends because they went out the night before and they came home way past curfew and they were drunk and they shouldn't have been drinking, yada, 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 right? All the things that get us grounded and they deserve to be grounded, then they deserve to be grounded. And we have to kind of run the risk that that their behavior might escalate. That doesn't mean I give in, right? That doesn't mean I say yes to all the things. And we have to give our kids the opportunity to grow and develop and kind of make mistakes. And so they might have another attempt or they might get more agitated or they might do something and it's okay as a parent to set a limit, to set a rule, to, but, you, but the key is you have to be consistent and follow through. And when we are afraid mm-hmm. as an adult, we don't always do that. Mm-hmm. And then that does impact our care for ourselves, our follow through on our own, right? We feel like we need to be home all the time. We can't go out with our friends. We can't go to the gym. We can't do the things that we know make us better parents. Yeah. So you are a better parent when you do your own self. Like, let's just make this clear. You are a better parent when you do your own self-care. When you go to the gym, when you see your friends, when you take a walk, you know, not just the treat kind of self-care, like you got a massage today, but the real everyday self-care routines that you engage in, you are a better parent and you are able to be more, um, in like, uh, not the word, that the word that's in my head is not the right word. You're able to be more reasonable and more and less reactive when you are doing your own self-care routine. So even though you might be afraid, like don't lose that because you won't be as good a parent if you do. Mm-hmm. And the last question is, how do I explain my child's suicidal attempt to her younger siblings? I think it depends on the age of the younger siblings, right? I mean, I think if they're super little, you might just say they really were struggling and she hurt herself and you might keep it super, super simple. Um, I would ask, I would, I would start with a question. What do you want to know? Because you're, the younger siblings might not want to know as much as you want to tell them or much as you think they should know, right? Mm-hmm. So in, in some ways, it's like liken it to somebody, like a grandparent who might be sick, right? I am, you, you have one kid who might want to know every piece of information of why that person is sick. And you might have another kid who goes, I'm good. I don't need to talk about it, right? So I think starting with the question of, Hey, you know that your older sibling was having some struggles. What do you know? What do you want to know? I'll answer whatever I can try and answer. And some of it might be even saying, you know, that's your sibling's story to tell you. When they're ready to talk to you about it, we'll make sure you have an opportunity to talk to that. I don't want to tell their story for you. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's important is that it's, it's important to give whichever sibling might have attempted suicide the agency to share their story as they choose. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe you're there to mediate it. But I think asking questions of what do you know? What are you worried about? How can I help you? Those are really important questions because very often adults 
like kids ask a question and they want like this much of an answer and adults give, you know, they want a little baby answer and like adults give a giant yeah. answer. And the kid's like, I really just wanted to know like what time dinner was. And it's like, got it. So, uh, so yeah. do a little investigating into what they really want to know before you just kind of share it all. Okay. Um, all right. So that concludes the questions from the audience. A lot of them were bunched up in very much what we talked about already. So <laughs> sure. in order to stop repeating it, we'll, um, those are just some of them. So next Perfect. we go on to the open mic section <laughs> where you get to talk open about mouth. anything that you are passionate about. <laughs> oh, there's too many things, right? So right now in the United States, it's college basketball season. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge college basketball fan. Okay. In fact, it's funny because one of the teams that I really like, like the college, like I didn't go to this university. So it's all the universities and all their teams. And one of the teams that I watch is playing right now. So my husband's recording it for me so I can watch it when we're done. <laughs> um, and this is my favorite time of year because I love college basketball. And I think college sports are so much more fun because people are so enthusiastic and they're fun. And it's anyone's game. And it has nothing to do with anything I do in my day-to-day life whatsoever. So it's like totally fun and energetic. And they have a big tournament that starts in a couple weeks. And, you know, the top teams end up losing to like the lower. It just, it's one of those, like, anybody could take it. Anybody can win. The underdogs often take down the, you know, the the, the Samsons lose and kind of get taken down. and Or not the Samsons, the David and Goliath, right? Like they lose their their mojo and get taken down by the little guys and mm-hmm. it's just really fun and everybody kind of gets into like even if it's a team you don't know and don't care about but they're like the last seed and they're winning all these games everybody like rallies around them and it's just it you happen to catch me at the time of the year where that is like my my favorite thing to <laughs> to spend my time doing so when we are finished i will be going to do that and watch some basketball so that is yeah. it's a goofy thing but it's super fun <laughs> No, um, my family have a, no matter where we are, no matter what we do, we all take the day off when um, Super Bowl comes on. Ah, and nice. We just, we just watch it because it always comes on on a weekday. It's never come on, it came on on a weekend. So because no, it's a Sunday, it's a Sunday night event here. Exactly. So it's Monday. <laughs> so we always take that Monday off. Um, nice. And then we just sit down, we have a whole bunch of snacks and we we love watching it a whole lot more than we would love to watch um australia's football australia's sports um because it's something that all of us are really into and yeah so i can i i love this kind of season where it's like big football season yeah um college football is really interesting i think uh, there's a lot of uh documentaries that netflix has on college a different college football that happens yeah. and the scholarships that it entails and it's amazing me, it's, yeah it's so interesting as well like just how sport helps someone gets in it get an education yeah it's amazing what what they what it does here in the states and and it's like i i mean i like any college sport so i like football i like but basketball i don't know why i think because the pace of the game is pretty fast and everybody's moving and it's there's something about and different than pro basketball which to me like they're not as enthusiastic like college like they're so they're still so like eager and hungry and want to make yeah. it work it just you know and it's still anybody's game and so it's just it's so fun and and that and it is amazing how so many students who would not be able to afford college 
but our great athletes can go and play and get get amazing education. So it's yes, it's it's an interesting thing for sure. And I love that you like to watch Super Bowl because, I mean, you know, did you get to watch and see Rihanna this year? Like, you know, she yes. kind of slayed it, but. <laughs> yeah, she did. She did. hundred percent she did. <laughs> I thought. I mean, I know a lot of people did not, but I thought she was great. Yes, Super Bowl I, Sunday is also one of my favorite events, by the way. I'm with you on that one. It's like <laughs> chicken wings. You know, we make wings. We hang out. We have friends come over. It's definitely a thing. So I'm with you. Uh, it's just, it feels weird us celebrating it in Australia because um, not a lot of people in Australia do. Right. But we love doing it. We, we, it's like I the it's big fun. family reunion. <laughs> nice. I think that's awesome. Super fun. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Jennifer, for coming on and talking about this today. Thank you for having me. Super important topic. So nice to be yes. able to share some insights into how to help with it. Mm-hmm. And if there's a way that an audience member would like to get into contact with you to sort of discuss this a little bit more, is there a way that they can? Sure. So they can, I don't have TikTok. I'm not a mental health TikTok influencer, but I do have like Instagram. And so I'm at Dr. Jen Arine on Instagram and I'm Dr. Jennifer Hartstein on Facebook. And that may be some of the easier ways to track me down. And then I can always direct them to like regular email and we can chat there for sure. Perfect. Well, I will put the link in the description below and make sure it's easy for all of our audience members to <laughs> access it. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for joining me and for discussing this and for giving a little bit more insight as to how big of an issue this is, in, especially in today's society. Thank you for actually having the conversation. I think the more we talk about it, you know, the better served we will be to help these kids that need us. So great to be able to be part of it. Yes, no, I 100% agree with that. Um, if anyone would like to follow up a little bit more, there will be down the link below, down in the description below, or on the side, depending on where you're watching it. Um, yes, thank you guys so much for listening and for watching and for being a part of the show. It's been amazing so far, and I'm loving every second of it. Uh, if you want to follow up, follow us on YouTube or anywhere you're watching, and then you'll get updates onto the new episodes that come out every week or aim to come out every week uh thank you guys for listening and i'll see you guys in the next episode you've been listening to raising parents the parenting science insights podcast produced by the parenting science labs a division of lmsl the life management science labs more episodes are available from 10 life management perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at pa.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent, and thanks for tuning in.